AI in New York. I'm Chris Banger Drowns. Thanks for listening. All right. The time now is almost 5 p.m. That means to stay tuned for Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned. Welcome to Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. Thank you for tuning in to WBAI this afternoon. You were just listening to our special coverage, and after that, a latest news report. And I'll give you a recap of some of the highlights of that in just a few moments. We're heading into the July 4th weekend. Many of us are wondering, what next? Uh, I was anxious about getting outside this weekend, and even though the numbers here of new COVID uh, cases are significantly lower than what they had been weeks and months ago, we're seeing this surge across the country to the extent that many regions are reversing their decisions to reopen uh, certain uh, or enter those next phases. I mean, frankly, as soon as I woke up, I think it was yesterday or the day before, and read about this new virus in pigs that seems to be growing abroad, I wondered what's going to happen next? What else is going to happen during 2020? I mean, at a time when we'd normally, many of us, be focusing on what this show is all about, which is politics and policy, and looking towards the November elections, we're faced with this global pandemic, and it's reaching astronomic proportions across the globe. A wrecked economy, including here in New York City. We're hearing about murder hornets and locusts, if you saw those videos in the last week, that were swarming areas across the globe. And frankly, this summer, I'm sure if we have another heat wave, we're going to be focusing on climate issues again. And that is a topic that I hope to get to over the summer with some of my guests. Here in New York State and in New York City, we're dealing with the surging unemployment rate. Even if the national rate has improved ever so slightly in June, per the State Labor Department today, And we're looking at a possible eviction, tsunami, and homelessness crisis this summer when that moratorium ends uh, in mid-August. The mayor and the council just inked a budget, and that's something that Max and Murphy talked about in this time slot yesterday. They just inked an $88.2 billion budget that severely slashes some components, some areas. There are going to be noticeable repercussions in, in many of the things that we've gotten used to in arts and culture, in senior services. I know that is an issue here in Queens where I'm broadcasting from. The Queens Borough President, Sharon Lee, has highlighted this significant cut and how that's going to impact services to many seniors here in Queens. And as you would likely know, there's the cut uh, to the NYPD, though... The call had been for a $1 billion cut. There is a legitimate debate over whether all of the announced cut was really cut or just kind of shifted around as part of some fiscal game playing. So we've got a lot to talk about today with my guests. So we're going to have two guests, one coming up in just a few moments, and that is Donovan Richards from the New York City Council, who uh, is going to talk not only about his run to become the next Queensborough president, but about the council's budget why he voted against the budget, as well as some of the criminal justice reforms that have been shepherded through by the city council. And then in the second half, we're going to talk with Stanley Richards, who was appointed by the mayor to lead a panel to end solitary confinement and come up with other solutions uh, regarding the incarceration of folks at, uh, at Rikers at our city's jails. So before I get to the first guest, I want to talk a little about some of the news that is going on today. For instance, Joe Biden, he must be sitting very pretty today. His campaign and the Democratic National Committee raised $141 million last month. That was the second month in a row that his fundraising exceeded President Trump's. During the second quarter, Biden and the Democrats raised $282 million. Now, Trump, what did he raise on the Republicans? $266 million. So the uh, 
Trump and the Republican National Committee fell about $10 million short, a little over that, of Biden's total in June. Also, I want to talk with you about what Axios was reporting today. And this is interesting because I'll segue into the pandemic then. Axios reported that if Joe Biden wins the election, his response to COVID-19 is going to be dramatically different than what we're seeing from the current presidential administration. His response, according to Axios, would feature a no expenses spared federal approach to mitigating the virus and a beefed up, much more significantly strengthened safety net for those who are suffering the economic consequences of COVID-19. The Trump administration, now, if you're, you know, you've probably witnessed this, there's been a lot of denial, there's been a lot of uh, finger pointing, saying even the media uh, was was. Trump, you know, making this up, making this seem much worse than it was. The Trump administration opted into a largely state-led response to the virus, offering guidance and assistance that was provided by the federal government. But Biden's response would be a massive federally driven effort in which no cost would be too high. So I want to talk a little about the budget and then bring in my guest. New York City Council and the mayor on Tuesday of this week, had their, you know, it's the normal handshake deal. They had their deal. A majority of council members voted in favor of the $88.2 billion budget, but a significant number voted against it, had, uh, had serious concerns about some of the cuts, saying some were not going far enough. Others were saying that they went too far in some of the areas. And that brings me to my first guest, New York City Council member Donovan Richards. He's a lifelong resident of Southeast Queens and the Rockaways. He was elected to the New York City Council in March 2013, and he chairs the Council's Committee on Public Safety. He's been on our show before, and so it's a pleasure to have him back with us today. Welcome back, Councilman. Thank you so much. So good to hear your voice. Pray all is well with you and your family, and you sound like you're hanging in there. I'm hanging in there, but I will tell you when we'll get to this that as I walk around, and I don't go out that much right now, as I walk around, I just shake my head at people who seem to be a lot more cavalier about the uh, the virus, that they're not protecting themselves now. They think that, well, New York's over this right now and not thinking about what is going on across the country. That's me getting up on my pedestal. We'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> don't, don't worry. They're taking a cue from the NYPD right now who really wish them as well. <laughs> oh, we can, yeah, we can go to that, that route. That is something that uh, I, I was glad to see that the New York Times had, uh, had discussed that at some point about why many officers were just not wearing masks. I want to talk about the budget. This was a challenging budget. Quite a number of council members, including yourself, voted against it. What were your reasons for voting against the budget? Well, it didn't go far enough. And let me be clear when I say far enough. Um, you know, we talk about the billion-dollar price tag, and everybody seems to be fixated on that number as if, you know, a billion-dollar cut is going to eradicate many of the systematic issues and policies that I've combated over the course of the last two and a half years as the public safety chair. I mean, my protest vote had to do with I, I didn't want to give my stamp of approval to the cuts to the NYPD, which were really superficial at the end of the day. But certainly there wasn't enough fleshed out. I didn't have enough detail before the vote. And that's why I protested on this vote. I thought the NYPD needed to do better. The mayor needed to do better. I believe the speaker did as much as he can, but he was hamstrung by the administration. And I wanted to send a clear message that this is not okay and that the NYPD needs real change. And as far as the message you want to send, if you, I mean, were in the mayor's position or you were the speaker at this point, what would you have fought more for? What do you think, you know, especially as we look towards the next year when we're going to be facing a significant, many significant challenges here in the city with restoring our economy. What do you want to see happen? Because obviously there, there may be, I would think there would be modifications to the budget over this next year based on new needs that emerge. Yeah, well, you must talk about overtime for a second. You know, every year I raise the same issue. This year was the first time seems like I could get on second base with the issue of <laughs> overtime. And last year, the NYPD spent over $780 million on overtime. So it is the wild, wild west. There are very little safeguards. And that's one of the reasons I voted against this budget. You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. 
third time, I need to go sit in the corner for a 20-minute break, as, as I tell my um, four-year-old sometimes when he, when he gets too out of line. So, you know, we weren't going to fall for this, trick, this trickery um, in this budget. There needed to be safeguards there. We talked about reshuffling school safety. And let me be clear, you know, this, this NYPD budget that they shuffled, it was like moving money from che- one checking account to a second checking account and saying you're saving money. You're cutting. You weren't really cutting. You were just moving money from one account to the other account, and there were no you didn't you didn't spend any of it. So you know they need to tighten up on the overtime. We needed more uh, uh, details on school safety, and then they counted fringe benefits, which was also creative accounting. Um, you know the fringe benefits are going to follow the school safety agents to DOE as well, so that really wasn't um, cuts as well. Um, and then we talk about, you know, the mayor has alluded to cutting two, 22,000 city workers' jobs. I mean, but at the same time, while we postpone, and I use that word postpone, two graduation classes, there was no hiring freeze set for the NYPD at the same time while we're talking about largely black and brown New Yorkers who would be laid off later in the year. So there were a lot of issues with this budget. There were some things that were good, like restoring some youth employment program partially, after school programming, but the budget did not go enough, uh, far enough to really uh, address a lot of the systematic issues that uh, black and brown New Yorkers, especially who incurred COVID-19 like Far Rockaway, um, were dealt with. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that about the summer youth employment program. That was one of the, the points that I had noted that there was some restoration. At the same time, one that maybe, obviously, being in the council, you would have heard about this beforehand. I wasn't aware uh, even that there was going to be a significant cut to the Fair Fares program, which many New Yorkers at this time would have been relying on. Well, this is one of the reasons I voted against the budget. You know, these things being sprung on us the last minute. And, you know, for the mayor to get on <laughs> the news and and project as if he was addressing all of these systematic issues while pulling a, you know, a, a facade around the budget cuts to the NYPD. I mean, how could we not cut the NYPD more significantly and then talk about addressing a lot of the systematic issues? Um, but, co- but very similar. This is just another glaring example. Uh, when you talk about the Fair Fairs program, a program that has largely served um, black and brown, poor New Yorkers who need to get around. We talk about getting the economy revamped. And we know which communities were hit hardest by COVID, communities of color, because many of the essential workers and low-wage workers come from these communities. So to cut off, you know, um, the Fair Fairs program, I mean, it defeats everything we, t- we're, we were talking about and all of the policy issues we wanted to address uh, during COVID-19 and in the post-COVID-19 world. Um, this was irresponsible and didn't go far enough. And uh, talking about the NYPD, you, you have been uh, you have been very assertive about the need for criminal justice reforms that should be taken up by the city council. And when or a few weeks ago, when you were supposed to be on the show, but we were preempted because uh, of the attorney general's hearing that was going on, which was very important. So I'm glad that WBAI had broadcast that in its entirety. Uh, we weren't able to talk at that time. Can you talk a little about the important police reforms that uh, that were shepherded through that you helped to lead in the last few weeks, and also then what's still on the table? What else still needs to be addressed as we move ahead? Well, we, we uh, enacted a few bills, and they were very important bills, bills that were sort of stymied for a long time. Uh, the disciplinary matrix, something that a lot of police departments are talking about, uh, around the country now, uh, the mandate for the NYPD to come up with the discipline structure. Right now, it's the Wild Wild West. You know, if if an officer has an infraction, there's no uh, penalty attached to that right now uh, through the NYPD's guidelines. So that bill was a big one. The banning of the NYPD hiding their uh, their uh, shields, which was done during the protests. We saw a lot of that. Uh, Lika Samuel sponsored that bill. And then Jamani Williams' Right to Record Act was huge. Um, you know, we, you do have a right to record the NYPD, and there should be no repercussions to that. And we saw what happened to the young man who obviously uh, 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 taped the Eric Garner death. Um, you know, he was targeted by the NYPD. 
So that was an important bill. And then the uh, Vanessa Gibson uh, had the Post Act, which was a big, big bill to uh, push the police department to be more transparent around the technologies that they're using, which cracks New York, which cracks New Yorkism. And you know, all of us pass the speed cameras, but little of us know that our license plates are being tracked when we do that. So that was a huge bill um, as well. Uh, moving into the future. Uh, a lot of things um, that we still need to accomplish. You know, the governor has given a mandate to the departments across the state to come up with uh, new policy-driven goals uh, if they want state money. So we look forward to working with the governor certainly on that as we move forward. And then, there, you know, there are some other bills that are out there. Driving while you're black. I mean, I have a bill on that. Um, you know, a lot of traffic infractions, including walking while black, uh, you know, a lot of black New Yorkers are given more jaywalking tickets than white New Yorkers, although as New Yorkers, we all jaywalk. <laughs> you know, uh, we all are guilty of it, but most of those um, summonses are given to everyday New Yorkers. Um, the police department hasn't addressed bias. You know, they've, they haven't substantiated one bias complaint in the entirety of, <laughs> of the New York City Police Department, and we know that there's bias there. CCRB also has identified that, and that's something we'll be looking closely at. We'll be working very closely with the C Civilian Complaint Review Board on body camera footage, and obviously 50A was a big one because now we'll have uh, records of police officers, and we need to make sure that those officers who don't do justice for the badge are gone from the department. So still a lot of oversight to be done, a lot more budget transparency, a long way to go. Um, but in, you know, my last few months, uh, I, I want to make sure that we tighten up on these things and that we leave this department better than we found it. So I was going to go to the pandemic, but you just said in my last few months. So my mind goes to then uh, the Queensboro president's race. And I'll come back to the pandemic in, in a few moments. Um, right now, if, uh, if I'm correct, the absentees are not going to be uh, not start to be counted until July 8th next week. But you still have a sizable lead at this point. What is it like right now as we have to sit back and wait, unlike most of the other elections where you'd have a good sense right now of where we stood? Well, we're up 10,000 votes, and I've been here before. In 2013, uh, we had to count absentees as well, and the science and math certainly was, uh, it was much more complicated than being up by 10,000 votes, but we do agree that every vote should be counted. Um, and, you know, listen, we, we, I think we ran a pretty good campaign. Um, message resonated around the borough. Um, during this period, I didn't shy away from police reform and my values and convictions um, in which, you know, politically it probably would have been wise to talk less about police reform if you wanted, you know, votes, uh, especially conservative votes around the borough. Uh, you know, but I think overall, you know, what we felt on the ground, uh, what we've accomplished over the course of the last um, now, this is we've got 18th year at the city council, believe it or not, elected six years uh, after the murder of my childhood friend, Darnell Patterson, you know, we told our story. Sean Bell was my neighbor. You know, he was somebody murdered by the NYPD. Um, you know, this, this, these are the stories that resonated with everyday Queens residents. And now it's our obligation to make sure we take the progress that we've made in our district alone and really ensure that that blueprint is, uh, is, is, is projected around the borough and that we we build affordable housing, that we address health care, and that we address a lot of the disparities around the borough. So um, I, I feel relatively good, but it's not over to the fat lady thing. <laughs> and I'm glad you mentioned some of those areas because I, I, I was curious uh, when you look at the borough president's office and you consider the issues that you just mentioned, are there specific offices or divisions that you want to establish that don't cur currently exist in the borough president's office? Well, I want to look at, you know, we are in a, in a challenging time, and I am really uh, fearful of where this housing crisis is going to go. Um, in a post-COVID world where a lot of New Yorkers were laid off, we know that there have been record, record numbers of people applying to unemployment. Uh, once these courts open up, you're going to have, these courts are going to be full. So we need to really build housing uh, one of the reasons, once again, I voted against the budget, you know, uh, the affordable housing budget was cut uh, immensely, and we need to ensure that we're building housing. So a zoning task force 
to look at opportunities around the borough uh, is going to be critical so that we can drive that conversation and build some real affordable housing, even with the budget being cut. But we're going to have to work with our federal and state partners to really lobby for that money to be put back into the budget um, so that housing is front and central. You know, food insecurity is a big issue. Um, you know, there's a program called the Fresh Program, where, which offers incentives to developers to build out, um, you know, affordable, fresh food and fruits. Um, so we want to look at uh, expanding that program. Uh, and then health care is a big one. I mean, you know, and we're going to have to work with Governor Cuomo very closely to ensure that state dollars are coming down to expand uh, health care institutions across the borough. Many of our hospitals were overwhelmed during COVID-19, including in Far Rockaway, where we lost a substantial amount of people, a lot of friends, over a thousand constituents lost in Far Rockaway to COVID-19 and then in South Keys, Queens as well. So we, we have a lot of work to be done. Um, and a lot of it will be based on budget and ensuring that our small businesses are moving forward and that the resources are actually reaching the pockets of Queens that have historically been disinvested in. So I've got just about a minute or two left. Uh, the mayor's announced that we're not going to uh, start with uh, indoor dining at restaurants this coming week as we look towards the next phase. Are you happy with these decisions? Did you agree with that? What do you think we should be doing next? Well, we're not out the woods, and, you know, one of the things I identified is not enough New Yorkers early on were not getting tested and, track, and tracked on COVID-19 and certainly had some disagreements with the mayor on that early, and COVID-19 had hit many pockets of our city because there just wasn't enough testing. So now that there's testing, we, we know a little bit more, but there's no vaccine. I mean, we have to be cautious as New Yorkers. So I, I do agree with the mayor on this one. We've seen what's happening in California. They're starting to roll back a lot of the phases that they initially had reopened on. Uh, and we're not out the woods. You know, I, I was speaking to my local hospital just this last Friday, and they started to see just some slight upticks in people coming into the ER room. So I urge New Yorkers to wear their mask, including the NYPD, um, to continue to practice social distancing. I know it's, it's the summer, the beach is open, but we are not out the woods. Um, which means that the spread is still capable of increasing around New York City. So I, until there are regulations that um, are in place and, and until there are incentives in place to help our small businesses to deal with this issue holistically, I, I think it would be irresponsible to open up right now. I think the open streets has worked out well, uh, continue to do that, and then as we move into a different space later in the year, there's an opportunity to certainly ensure that um, we can get this phase and get it done right in a, in a realistic way. But I hope we find a vaccine in all honesty. Councilman Donovan Richards, I've got just about 10 seconds left. How can people learn more about you and your work? Uh, you can go to richardsforqueens.com. You can go to council.nyc.gov, which is my official government website. Uh, follow us on Facebook, D. Richards NYC Council or uh, Instagram, D. Richards NYC Council, and Twitter, D. Richards 13. And we are fired up for change in this borough, uh, and I look forward to continuing to represent and to be a voice uh, for our folks here in the borough and to build a Queens that works for everyone. Donovan Richards, thanks so much for appearing here on Driving Forces today. Thank you so much. God bless you. Stay safe. Thank you. You've been listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I was just talking with uh, New York City Council member Donovan Richards, also candidate to become the next Queensboro president. Something we just talked about very briefly, he uh, stressed the need to wear a mask. And before I just get to uh, the Celeste Katz segment that I'd like to uh, have you listen to, I want to say that... I just ordered two from WBAI a few days ago. Uh, that was another donation that I made to the station. Uh, we have WBAI masks. If you are a listener, you can contribute and get one of these masks. I think it's, and Reggie will correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's a 30 or $35 donation. It's $35. $35. $35 donation. That's it. I ordered two. So my partner and I can walk around in these and show off our WBAI pride and ensure our health 
and also the health of those around us because it's not just about ourselves. We don't want, if we happen to test positive, we don't want to infect anyone else. And you can make a donation. And we have, apparently we had a good surge of orders in the beginning for these. You can still order them. It is smart. Also remember, you shouldn't be wearing the same mask every day. You should wash the masks, especially if you have disposable ones. You should make sure you have a few masks. And that's where WBAI comes in. Become a buddy. Support our station because we've been around for 60 years. We want to be around for 60 more. And now here's how you can do that. You can call us. Call the number 516-620-3602. You can name the show Driving Forces when you make a donation and make sure you want $35 or more. You want to get one of those masks. You can go online. It's easy. Give to. That's the number two. Give to WBAI.org. And there's one other way you could do it. You could just text. Pick up your phone and text WBAI to the number 41444. And just then follow your prompts on your smartphones. It's very easy. You will help sustain us. The money that you provide to us will help us stay on the air. And it would be incredibly uh, wonderful if you could do that in the name of driving forces. So in talking about the pandemic, Celeste Katz, who was the co-host of this show, has been still contributing every week these amazing pieces where she's talking with New Yorkers from all different parts of uh, walks of life. She's getting them to talk candidly about how the pandemic has affected them. So in this new installment, she spoke with Denise Frederick, a nanny and home attendant who's active with the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And Denise talked about staying safe and solvent during the pandemic. Let's take a listen. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's coronavirus diary. My name is Denise. I live in Brooklyn, and I am a professional nanny and also a part-time home attendant. Oh, my God. It has been... A roller coaster. My home attendant job, I still do. I have not stopped working that job. I've worked throughout the pandemic. Even when they had the shelter in place, I worked. Unlike my nanny job, that job, my family, they moved up to Boston, Massachusetts, to the other home. And they've been there since March, and they won't be back in the city until September, hopefully. I have to eat. I have a daughter who is in college, so I have to go to work and to provide basic food and to pay housing, which we know is very expensive in New York City. I've protected myself. I got myself personal protective gear. Um, I, I, I just dealt with it head on. I mean, I followed all the CDC guidelines, what they were saying that we should do. I just followed it, and I'm like, I have to work, put myself in the frame of mind that this will be over at some point. It's going to go back to some sort of normalcy in the near future. So I just put on my brave face and I just do what I had to do. My family they were paying me from the time they left, but then now they have to find other um, babysitting needs up where they are in Boston. So that kind of cut back on what they were giving me, even if it was part-time. So now it puts me in a situation where I'm in a tight spot where my budget is like, I'll be like living like dollar to dollar like every week. So it's hard. It's a lot of stress, but I'm somebody, I always look at the positive sides of things. Always look at the positive because I know at some point we're going to rise from this depression that's, that, that's going on now. So I'm just dealing with it one day at a time, taking it in strides, meditating, breathing. I've spoken to many nannies, and I'm also a member of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And a lot of workers have been affected by the pandemic. Some majority of workers I know, they're not working because their families have moved either to Long Island. Some of them have moved out of the city completely. And those workers have left have been left without work. Some, the employers are telling them if they don't come to work, they don't get paid. And it's a lot to do with them not being documented. So they use that as their bargaining tool to get them to come to work. It's very hard. And um, 
NDWA is trying to, we've, we've been speaking with legislators so that we could get the National Domestic Workers Bill of Rights passed. Because a lot of workers have no rights, no benefits, because they're undocumented. So hopefully with this pandemic right now, I'm hoping to see a change in legislation concerning all of us domestic workers. A year from now, I really do believe that things are going to be way better with domestic workers because now that we have become essential, it now puts us out there as to we are now able to bargain better for, for, for better pay because... As we know, the minimum wage in New York is $15. But then, really and truly, nobody could survive on a $15 minimum wage. So I, I do believe at the end of the pandemic, I think a lot will change when it comes to, to, to the way we have been treated by some of the employers. I think that's going to change. It's going to take a whole 362. Denise Frederick is a nanny and home attendant who lives in Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. And that was our Celeste Katz, who has been chronicling the uh, lives of a number of people here in New York City and how they've been impacted by the virus. If you go to WBAI.org, you can see uh, and then listen to, you'll see who these people are, read a little about them, and click on each one of these, and you'll be able to hear their stories. And she's talking with a range, talked with a range of people. You've been listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. At the outset of the show, I had referenced the fact that the pandemic the number of new confirmed cases has been surging. Uh, John Hopkins University had reported that the no daily number of new confirmed cases exceeded 50,000 for the first time yesterday. There were more than 50,000, 50,203 new coronavirus cases in under 24 hours, and that is more cases than the, the country confirmed during the first two months of the pandemic. Health officials are incredibly concerned that the second that the situation could get even worse as we head into this weekend. There's been advisories urging people not to travel, not to travel between states in particular, uh, and to limit their activities this weekend, which is normally a weekend or a day this Saturday when we would want to celebrate the fourth, when we would attend barbecues and large gatherings, we would head to the beach and to picnics. And there's a lot of cautionary uh, notes out there right now saying that we should take extra caution right now. As I talked about with Donovan Richards a little while ago, the state is or the city is getting ready to enter this next phase, but the mayor announced that indoor dining is going to be still suspended for now. The next phase is phase four, uh, which and that is planned for July 20th if the virus numbers do not rise dramatically uh, here in the city. We're going to have to wait and see how that goes, particularly this weekend. There's been a slight uptick in the state, but the numbers are still very low that the governor and the mayor are warning us to take heed, but they're not being alarmist at this point and saying that we're seeing a significant increase yet. You have to see what happens across the country. So I talked with Donovan Richards a little while ago about criminal justice reforms, and that brings me to my next guest, Stanley Richards, who is the chair of a new panel that was announced by Mayor de Blasio this week uh, with a simple mandate to find a way to end solitary confinement. Uh, Stanley Richards also serves as the vice chair of the City Board of Correction. He is also the executive vice president of the Fortune Society, and he joins me now. Welcome to WBAI. Hey, Jeff. Thank you for having me. So I did not read a lot about your bio because I want to give you the opportunity to tell our listeners a little more about you and about your bio. Well, you know, I was born and raised in the South Bronx in Soundview Projects, and all my life I grew up uh, hearing the messages from my school, social promotion, and from my surroundings. 
that as a young black man, uh, I wasn't valued and I wouldn't end up um, with a successful life. And what I ended up learning how to do was to live that life. I lived what I saw in front of me in my projects in an isolated part of the Bronx. And so I started getting in trouble as a young kid, ended up hanging out on the streets, selling drugs, committing crimes, and going to jail. And through those experiences, I thought that that's what my life was going to be about. And so I learned how to live. I understood when I went to prison, how to live in prison, how to live in jail. When I came home, I learned how to live on the street and how to operate on the street. And I understood that there were consequences to how I showed up in the street, and those consequences were survival in jail. And then my last incarceration, uh, 1986, I uh, was on Rikers from 1986 to 1988, getting my case adjudicated. I was sentenced to nine years. I ended up going upstate. And when I went upstate, I ended up going to school. I went and got my GED. And then for my GED, I went to college. And I realized that while I was incarcerated, my mind could go anywhere I wanted through books and reading. And so I, I started getting different messages from having success in school and prison. So all those messages that I heard about that I would end up in jail or dead, I began to understand that that's not, that's not who I am. That's not, that didn't have to be my life path, that I could create a life for myself that didn't include selling drugs, committing crimes, and going to jail. And so I graduated from college. I was valedictorian of, of, of my class. I graduated magna cum laude. And when I came home, I made a commitment to have a life that didn't include going back to jail and prison. And I knew it would be hard. And when I came home, I applied for lots of jobs. And people turned me down. They said I needed to have the experience. And nobody wanted to give me an opportunity to get the experience. And Fortune was the organization that walked the talk. And they hired me as a counselor in 1991 when I came home from prison. 1991, they hired me. And I started as a counselor and I had a series of promotions. I left and I worked at Hunter College Central on Age Community Health. And I still stayed connected to Fortune and I came back to Fortune as a senior director. And today, I've been back to Fortune since 2001, and today I'm the Executive Vice President of Fortune. And I see my job in this role is to hold the image of who people can be when they walk through the doors of Fortune. Hold the image, not of the crime that they committed or how much time they served, but who they could be in the world. And, and I hold that image until they begin to see it for themselves, until they begin to hold it for themselves. So not only as a role model, but I try to change the system that I know chews up so many black and brown kids, chews up so many black and brown men and women, and devastates our communities, because I know there could be another path. And I'm just one example of thousands of people throughout the country who have rebuilt their life after incarceration, even in the midst of multiple storms, storms of rejection, storms of racism, storms of the crime is who you are uh, for the rest of your life. Even in the midst of those and storms, as you consider, people have And as you consider your experience and you look at your appointment this week to lead this panel, how is your experience going to shape the work ahead? And, and talk a little about the issues that the panel will address in coming up with better solutions than solitary confinement. Absolutely. I, I think uh, for me and Deanna, both of us are formerly uh, incarcerated people. And I think for us, what we're going to be bringing to the table, first of all, I just really appreciate the mayor just emphatically saying we're ending solitary confinement. So we don't need to go into the conversation about how do we tinker around the edges. Our path and goal is clear, end solitary confinement. So now the question is how do we do it? How do we create a system that does three things? One, provide safety for everybody. People detained, officers, visitors, everybody. People who work on, on, in our jails. Two, how do we create a foundation of programs 
so that uh, people can engage in services so that they too could see a new life for themselves once they get released. And three, how do we make it accountable? So that there is accountability for officers, there's accountability for detaining people. And so those are the three pillars that we're going into this with the goal of ending solitary. And my experience and Deanna's experience is going to tell us one thing. When I was in solitary confinement, it, I didn't reflect on what got me in solitary confinement. What I did was I went into survival mode. Um, I went into how do I survive this moment, and then when I get out and go back to general population, how do I survive general population? So what I ended up doing was becoming better at surviving. We don't want that. We want to be able to create a system that holds people accountable, transparent, provides safety, and provides uh, programming so people can change their behavior. What have studies shown about the lasting effects of solitary confinement? You know, I, I think when we look at Khalif Rob, who spent years in solitary confinement, that he was isolated, he was traumatized, and there was a number of interviews that when he came home, he said, I don't feel like I can fit in. I don't feel like I belong. Because he has been isolated for so long that fitting in, being able to have a conversation with someone, being able to feel normal, that, that for some reason being around people makes you nervous. Solitary confinement traumatizes people. It, it, it doesn't leave people in a good uh position. And so what we're going to be doing is creating a different system because we know study after study and the International uh, uh, Human Rights uh, Council, a number of places came out that said solitary confinement amounts to torture. And if we're going to be a nation of rebuilding and reimagining our criminal justice system, to have the system truly be blind justice, that it doesn't matter what color you are, it doesn't matter how much money you have. If we're gonna build that system, we need to take out the pieces that are traumatizing and dehumanizing uh, and solitary and, and you talked about Khalif Browder. I mean, he had spent two of his three years uh, at Rikers in solitary. The other uh, incident that has gotten considerable attention was the uh, 27-year-old Afro-Latinx transgender woman, Laylene Polanco, uh, who had an epileptic seizure while in solitary confinement uh, at Rikers last year. When you first heard about her death and her experience, what went through your mind? Another tragedy, another tragedy that as a society, um, we have so focused our energy on punishment, isolation, punishment, isolation, that uh, Leilene becomes another tragic story in a tragic system. When you look at uh, Leilene, Let's put aside the solitary. Like she shouldn't have been in solitary. And thank goodness, uh, Khalif and Leilene and others are um, what is given rise to the agreement that we need to end solitary confinement right now. But the truth be told is Leilene should have never even been in jail. Like for someone on, on incarcerated for a $500 bail for a misdemeanor should have never been in jail. And so the system failed when the district attorney pursued a cash bail for her, when the judge looked at the record and didn't look at the circumstances, failed her. The entire system failed her. And I hope by closing Rikers Island, built a smaller system uh, having a system, as the mayor calls it, smaller, fairer, and just. And ending solitary confinement, we will be adding justice 
to the end of those tragic stories that are You mentioned the district attorney. So do you feel that there should have been criminal charges against the correction officers who were sanctioned uh, differently? Uh, The mayor announced, I believe it was late last week, a number of officers uh, were sanctioned uh, as a result of her death. But do you feel there should have been criminal charges the Bronx DA should have prosecuted? I leave leave those choices to our prosecuting attorneys. our Bronx District Attorney, um, I know her. I have confidence in her ability um, to be fair. She has stated from the moment she took office that she was going to be holding people accountable when it comes to Rikers Island. That includes officers. That includes detained people. I have confidence in that. What I want people to focus on, not on the should they be criminally charged and, and the issue of solitary confinement, that is but one piece in a very long tragic story, is that the fact that she was even in the jail, we should all be saying, what are we doing as a society that for a misdemeanor or $501 bail, we put someone incarcerated that ended up tragically losing their life in a very brutal and tragic system. And so, however the accountability happens for those officers, um, Darcel laid out um, her investigation saying that uh, she couldn't find uh, criminal intent and therefore she wasn't going to pursue charges. So I'm going to leave that to her. But I would, I would offer her and judges and our political leaders is that we need to ask ourselves, why did Laylene go to jail in the first place? Because if we stop it there, we won't have to talk about another tragic story of someone dying in a jail cell because of overheating or because of a medical condition or because of COVID-19. We won't have to talk about another tragic story of someone who's spending years in jail and prison came home and couldn't transition and ended up taking their life like we we shouldn't have those conversations if we stop it at the very beginning and what we've been saying at the courts and society we have been seeing this for years we have been around since 1967 and we have been advocating for the fundamental change of our criminal justice system because each year we see about 8,000 people whose life stories are like Raheem whose life stories are like Khalif's, uh, that they have survived those systems, but they're trying to put their lives together. And they're trying to put their lives together against tremendous odds, odds of racism, odds of underemployment, odds of homelessness, odds of substance abuse, mental health, and they're trying to put their lives together. And what we've said as an organization is we ought to be reducing our reliance on mass incarceration and groups, arrest, prosecution, detention, and eventually incarceration. And we need to reinvest back into the community's hardest hit. We need to make sure that we don't have 30, 40 children in the classroom, that we have classrooms in size of 15, that we have adequately paid teachers, that we have adequate resources, so that there is no digital divide between kids in the black and brown communities and those in the more fluent communities. That's where we need to make a difference. Because if we make a difference there, we make a difference in juvenile justice, we make a difference in criminal justice, and we could reshift those resources that we spend billions of dollars on back into those communities. And Fortune Society uh, stands ready to do that work with our political partners and some of our community partners and avenues. And I've got just about a minute or two left, and I just wanted your thoughts. Given the pandemic where we've had to reprioritize so much, where the city's budget uh, has had to be significantly cut, um, Knowing that we had the council and the mayor had already moved towards closing Rikers in several years, do you worry that 
that timeline is not is going to be kind of the can will be kicked down the road that Rikers will not close as as quickly as had been promised. I I don't I don't I think we have to deal with uh, what the reality we're in and what we've seen happen is uh, the mayor and the city council uh, try to figure out best uh, to handle a, a nine billion dollar gap. And it is not what everybody wanted, but we can't let great get in the way of good. And we got to work toward good so that we can end up at great. I have no concerns about being able to close Rikers Island because I believe that our political leaders and our mayor have all lined up together to understand and to say, if we say black lives matter, that means we can't have black and brown people in Uh, mass incarceration in New York City. And I believe that they are committed by their vote in 2019 to close Rikers Island and the mayor's announcement to end solitary confinement on Monday. I believe that they are committed to make sure it happens. And I know Fortune Society, Just Leadership, and other organizations that are out there that have been fighting this fight for a long time will not stand by and allow that to be put on the other, to be put on the side. So, I know for the Speaker Johnson, uh, the non-negotiable is we got to close Rikers Island. We got to deal with this budget reality, but the non-negotiable is we got to close Rikers Island. And I thank him, and I thank the mayor, and I thank all of the advocates who have stood by and continue to stand by to make sure that we close Rikers Island and fundamentally change the way criminal justice happens in New York, and hopefully throughout the nation. And on that note, how can people learn more about you and the work of the Fortune Society? Yes, well, I would encourage people to come visit our website, uh, fortunesociety.org, www.fortunesociety.org. It has our history, the work that we're doing. We, as I said, we see about 8,000 people a year. We provide services from employment, hard skills training, job training, substance abuse treatment, mental health treatment, re-entry housing, family reunification, HIV AIDS case management. Uh, We have one-stop shop. So if you have a family member who needs services, give us a call. Uh, We are available. If there's a policy that we need to take on because half our mission is advocacy, give us a call. Let us know. Uh, We want to not only be a safety net for those who are coming home or being diverted from the system, but we want to change the system from chewing up so many black and brown people. Stanley Richards, thank you so much for joining me here today on WBAI. Thank you, Jim. So, uh, as the show gets ready to wrap up, I again want to thank Stanley Richards, uh, who I just talked with, Executive Vice President of the Fortune Society. Also, New York City Council Member Donovan Richards, who is the uh, uh, still holds the lead to become the next Queensborough President, and of course Celeste Katz for her latest Coronavirus Diary Dispatch. Again, I encourage you go to our website at wbai.org and look for her Coronavirus Diary Dispatches. They're amazing to listen to them. And again, I just want to make a pitch again because I can't stop telling everyone you've got to wear masks. Wear your masks, and you. Could do, you could not only be protecting yourself and others, but you can show off your WBAI pride, which is so important to do because you can make a contribution and you can sustain us. You can keep us on the air. So if you would like to order one of those masks and contribute, do good at the same time, just give us a call at 516-620-3602. I'm hoping that as I walk around this weekend, hopefully my WBAI mask has arrived because I only just ordered two earlier uh, a few days ago. But you can also text us. Just pick up your phone now. Text WBAI to 41444, uh, and you just will get some prompts, and it'll walk you through what to do. And you can become a BAI buddy in the name of a show, uh, this show when you do that. Uh, and by doing that, you can just give a $10, $20, or $30, any amount really, contribution that just comes onto your credit card every month. That's what I do in addition to ordering the masks. So you, uh, you can go on our website, give to 
WBAI.org. Again, that's give two, and that's the number two, WBAI.org. Order those masks. Show off your BAI pride and let people know that you're also you're taking a position. You're saying, I care about you and I care about me and I care about the station by wearing those masks. Again, I want to thank you for tuning into Driving Forces today. Thank you again to my guests and, of course, Reggie Johnson for making this be a flawless show today. On Sunday, City Watch, 10 in the morning, my, host, uh, my co-host David Brand will talk with Council Member Antonio Reynoso and journalist Emma Whitford, and I will be back next Thursday. As of now, my guest is supposed to be, and hopefully he'll still be able to do it, Richie Torres, New York City Council Member Richie Torres, and possibly incoming elected official on a national level. Hopefully he's still able to do the show. We have a lot to talk about with him. So thanks again for tuning in. And have a great day. Living in a Ghost Town, WBAI Broadcasting in the midst of this pandemic is like operating in a ghost town. But we want to take a moment and thank you. Thank those of you who have become WBAI buddies in this COVID-19 outbreak. Thank you to Emily from Brooklyn, Paul also from Brooklyn, and Sandra from Inwood, who became WBAI buddies in the name of all WBAI shows. And so did Maurizio from Yorktown Heights and Lauren from Saville. Thanks to Alan from New Jersey, who became a buddy in the name of Lopate at Large. Allison from Amaranek is a buddy in the name of Green Street. And John is now a WBAI buddy in the name of Guns and Butter. Thank you for listening to WBAI, for becoming WBAI buddies. And please, if you would like to become a buddy, it's really easy. Just go to give2wbai.org, become a sustaining member, help keep WBAI afloat during this pandemic. Pandemic. If you listen to programs here on WBAI, then please consider supporting WBAI. Become a monthly sustaining member for 10 or more dollars a month, whatever you can afford. Thank you so much. WBAI can't do it without you because we're listener-sponsored. We're non-corporate, non-commercial, and we depend on listeners like you. Going to the phone, taking the initiative, going to the phone, calling 516 620 3602-516-620-3602. Say you want to become a WBAI buddy, a sustaining member in the name of your favorite show or in the name of all WBAI programs. It may seem like a ghost town, but in reality, WBAI is broadcasting your listening. And we're a community radio station coming together at 99.5 FM, streaming at WBAI.org. We're in a unique moment here. It's a moment where we have a chance to actually demonstrate our power. Imhotep Gary Bird heard on WBAI Friday evenings from 7 to 9 p.m. I learned from Dr. Walter Fontry, who, uh, fought, who fought with Dr. King in the civil rights movement, that there were five areas that they identified that they felt politics could control and hit. It was health, housing, education, economics, and social justice. The fact is, WBAI is a nexus for the progressive community to make those changes in all of those areas and has been decade after decade. I say to you again, whose station? Whose control? Long live WBAI. This is listener-sponsored, locally controlled WBAI New York.
right, and this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. The previous program was Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons, and that is heard Thursdays at 5 p.m. And I just wanted to follow up what he had said before as we are approaching the holiday weekend here. Even though that the weather is warmer, even though instinctively we tend to like feel like, oh, we need to do this event, we need to do that event, and, and it consists of outdoors, that should not stop anyone to continue 